I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter five, uh, 2. Excuse me. I'm getting ahead of myself there. All right. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 9, and please stand with me as we read God's Word. By the way, it's a privilege to have Ted and his wife and Oscar here with us, and we're glad you're, you're uh, amongst us today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, you would open our eyes today, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. I know someone who loves to wax eloquent about spiritual things. But he won't come to grips with Jesus. I think it's too painful a proposition for him. He would have to face his own sinfulness. As it is now, he can play it safe. He can skirt the issue by talking about God, even acting like an expert about the things of God, as long as he doesn't have to come face-to-face with Jesus. I hope he does before he dies, and it's too late. Today, we come face-to-face with Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And the main point of Hebrews chapter 1 is that God has spoken in his Son, who is better and stronger and greater than anything And any one. The point of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is that based on chapter 1, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And now the author of Hebrews continues that same stream of thought with some explanation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, the author points to Jesus who became man and restored mankind's dignity and God-ordained place in creation. And the first thing we see in this passage, in verse 5, is that angels don't get the privilege of being in charge of the world to come. It's not theirs. The world to come is not subject to angels. And subject is a word that pictures soldiers under the authority of their commanding officer. 
It came to mean any type of administration. And God was not going to entrust the administration of the world to come to angels. The world to come. What does that mean? It's not the present world system, the cosmos. That's not the word used. It signifies a future inhabited world to come. The millennial kingdom. And this new world will not be ruled by angels, even though the present world is by default. Satan is called the prince of this world. We know from Ephesians chapter 6 that the world is under demonic influence. Earth is now under the influence of both holy and fallen angels. And there is a huge conflict in this dual rulership. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we are told that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But mankind was meant to rule the earth. And one day, that will be restored by the Creator. Angels will not be rulers, they will be servants in the world to come, as we see in chapter 1 and verse 14. They are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Therefore, the argument that the writer is, is answering that Christ isn't better than angels because he became a man doesn't hold water. Man is lower than angels for a little while. And one day, man will be above them. And even, as 1 Corinthians 6.3 tells us, uh, will judge those who have fallen. So God didn't put angels in charge. The next thing we see in this passage is that the world was subject to mankind. In, cha- in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, the writer quotes Psalm 8. Specifically Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And he says that one has testified somewhere. Now, this doesn't mean he doesn't know the reference that he's quoting. When we do that, we're covering But the writer of Hebrews knew full well what he was quoting. In fact, he quotes it word for word. But as the writer of Hebrews remains anonymous, so he keeps the writers he quotes from the Old Testament anonymous. It's it's like that through the whole book of Hebrews. And in so doing, he highlights God's authorship of Scripture. That this is God's infallible, inerrant word. And that the Holy Spirit is the author. Now we know, if you look at Psalm 8, that David is credited as the human author. And in Psalm 8, verse 4, he says, What is man that you take thought of him? What is man? That you would remember him. That you would think of him. Now David starts this psalm by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor 
And then he goes and says, when I consider what you have done, why would you ever think of man? Why would you care? Or why would you think on him? The insignificance of man is implied here. David, feeling his own insignificance in the grand scheme of things, and also implying that mankind in general is rather insignificant. He says, what is man? And then, or the son of man, that you are concerned. To be concerned means to pay attention to someone to the point of helping them. To come to their side, to care for them. In fact, we get our word for overseer or bishop from this word. Who is the psalmist referring to? What is man? Well, that's mankind. But the son of man. Many think that's Jesus. But actually, it's not Jesus. It's mankind as well. What is man and the son of man that you should care about him, that you should remember him? The psalmist is asking, why would God ever bother with mankind? Verse 7, we read that he was made a little lower than angels. Mankind. How so? Mankind is physical in being. Angels are spiritual beings. Angels were given supernatural powers. They have access all the time to the throne of God. They do not die. And in God's created order, mankind is a little lower than angels. But we read that God crowned him with glory and honor. It's the Greek word stephanos for crown. It's it's the crown of honor. It refers to Adam in his innocent pre-fall condition at creation. It says that God appointed him over the works of Of his hands. That's chapter 2, verse 7 in Hebrews. And in verse 8, we see man as the head of all creation. It says, God has put all things in subjection to him. And so, even though mankind is inferior to angels, God gave the oversight of earth to man. And I think that David, and probably here the writer of Hebrews, had the origins of the world in mind when they said that. Go to Genesis chapter 1. All the way back to the beginning. We studied this this summer. But in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, you remember that God said, let us make man in our image alluding to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sky and over the birds of the 
fish of the sea and over birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's those flying fish as well. So. <laughs> he put all things under the feet of man. Picture a king whose throne is always elevated. People come to that throne. They would even kiss the feet of the king. One day all creation will be under man's feet. But it's pretty obvious to us. We don't have to look around too far to see that that's quite not the situation right now. Man is far from enjoying such status. More explanation is needed. Man's sovereignty over the earth was meant to be all-inclusive, including the administration of the world to come. As one writer put it, he is crowned king of nature, invested with an authority over creation. But man has fallen far short, far short of this destiny. Going back to Hebrews chapter 2, The last part of verse 8 reads, But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Not even with all of man's accomplishments and triumphs over nature has he reached that goal. Wonderful as the advances have been in science and in medicine and in space and in other areas. Why? Brings us to our third point. It was due to sin that mankind forfeited the privilege. Forfeited the privilege of dominion over the world. Due to the fall, mankind was incapable of fulfilling his God-ordained role. His God-ordained responsibilities. He lost his kingdom. He lost his crown. Earth is definitely not subject to man. In fact, go back, if you would, quickly to Genesis chapter 3. And we see the consequences of the fall. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Remember that God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Implying that there was some pain, but not as much as there would be. In pain you would bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face... You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The earth was corrupted due to sin. The results of sin quickly spread in the first family, who had murder, and, and then not soon after, polygamy, and not soon after that, the lifespans began to, to decrease. Destruction abounded. Depravity permeated. In our lives and families, we wrestle with the effects of sin every single day. 
You don't have to be told that, you know. It's nice to come into this room, though, isn't it, where there's peace and quiet. Life's messy. And instead of looking to the one who made him, man in his insecurity and his arrogance looked to himself, exalted himself. That's not the way God intended. But see, to use a sports analogy, the big football game today, man stepped out of bounds and out from under God and exalted himself and therefore was humbled. Ever since, God has been in the business of restoring the creature-creator relationship. Mankind, though, continues to run amok, making mountains out of molehills and ignoring the master. Why is it so tough for us to be in the word and prayer? alone or with your family or with other believers? It's because of sin. Why is it so difficult to keep your focus on Christ in the workplace or at school? Sin. Why are relationships so hard? Sin. I'll give you a frivolous example. Uh, Today's Super Bowl. Now you know I'm as big a sports fan as anybody. But we must remember, it's just a game. It has no bearing on life, no eternal significance. Now you notice I'm not talking about the UCLA-USC football game. (laughs) I'm talking about the Super Bowl here, okay? I am glad that ministry groups plan outreaches around the Super Bowl to capitalize on the opportunity But if you think about it, the Super Bowl has been lifted to the status of national holiday in America. It's funny. It's not funny. It's sad. But that youth sports has taken over every day of the week. Sunday is no longer sacred in many areas of our culture. But there's no youth sports today. You wouldn't want to interrupt the game. It's amazing to me how much attention this game gets. This one game. For two weeks, people have been prognosticating about who's going to win, the Colts or the Bears. Trash talking abounds. Each team is dissected and dismantled and then put back together again, hopefully in time for kickoff this afternoon. And while it may seem harmless, it's just one more indicator of a bigger problem. That's what I call deflection. We deflect attention from the real issues in our lives by diversions, such as athletic endeavors, or music, or work, or relationships, or school, or hobbies, intellectual pursuits, you name it. We're masters of deflecting the attention from what really matters to things that are temporary. Like a football game that lasts for three hours, or in the case of today, all day long. Now it is possible 
please don't get me wrong, it is possible to be engaged in good pursuits and acknowledge God. That is what we ought to do. That every area of life ought to be an area of worship towards God. But often we ignore that opportunity. I know I do. Mankind's arrogance is seen in that he consistently acknowledges mankind's presumed supremacy while denying God's true supremacy. It's no wonder that we read in in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, that the whole creation groans. We have sunk to the depths of depravity as a society and dressed it up in exalted humanity. And no matter how we try to spin it, we have failed to live up to God's ideal. We can't do it. And the answer does not lie in trying harder to win God's approval by our good behavior because we don't have any. And when we get to the bottom, and when we look up, and we see who's really at the top, it all comes into focus. Jesus. And that brings us to verse 9. Coming to verse 9 in this passage ought to be for us like coming to a spring of water in the middle of the desert. Or like seeing a a bosom friend after being gone a long time. Or like coming home to beloved family. You see, the game changes when Jesus comes on the scene. Look at verse 9. We had just heard that we do not yet see all things in subjection to mankind due to sin. But verse 9 says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the name above all names. We see Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you're a believer, those words ought to comfort your soul. In those words lie the answer to the issues that we are mired in. We see Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is the first time in the book of Hebrews that the name Jesus is mentioned. Jesus has been alluded to throughout the entire book, but not until chapter 2, verse 9, does the writer say, Jesus. Is very significant. He was made a little lower for a little while. The same words of Psalm 8 are now being applied to Jesus. It refers to the temporary nature of Jesus' humiliation. 
Because we see, the fourth point is, we see Jesus humbled and exalted. Verse 9 says, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. And now this language of Psalm 8 in verse 7 applied, is applied to Jesus. Jesus in his humanity was made for a little while lower than the angels. And because of the suffering of his death, we see him crowned with glory and honor. We've got to look at Philippians 2 right now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 9, we see him exalted. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus has the crown of honor and glory. He received it as a man, not as an angel, as a man. And so he can satisfy the words of the psalm that's quoted here. We do not see man triumphant, but we do see Jesus. Sin and death defeated man. Jesus conquered sin and death. By his work of redemption on the cross, Jesus fulfilled every requirement to be the representative of mankind. In his incarnation and substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, By his victory over sin and death, as the second Adam, he came in the form of man, and he has fulfilled our original purpose. So that we see the fifth idea here, everything is subject to Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul had spoken the gospel. And then in verse 20, he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And verse 27, quoting Psalm 8, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Everything is subject to Jesus. We don't see all things subject to mankind because of sin. But we do see Jesus. So why would God ever bother with mankind then? Because of amazing love. 
The incarnation of Jesus is the greatest proof of the love of God for us. Jesus was not sent as an angel. He came in the form of a man. And in so doing, we see the sixth point, Jesus restores man's dignity and man's place in creation. Mankind was put in in an exalted position by God, under God, but he sinned and therefore lost it. At the cross, Jesus restored the honor mankind forfeited due to sin. Verse 9 says, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Who is everyone? In 1 Peter chapter 2 we read that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Who is the everyone that he tasted death for? It's the many sons in chapter 2 verse 10. That he brought to glory. It's the ones in chapter 2 verse 11 that he's not afraid to call brethren. The author interprets and applies the language of the psalm to Jesus. And here puts Christ's death in behalf of and therefore instead of every man as the motive for his incarnation and death on the cross. Jesus said... In John 8, 52, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. To taste death doesn't mean to take a little sip. It doesn't mean to take just a little taste. It means to go through a bitter experience. To receive it all. That's what Jesus did on the cross. His death, according to this verse, was on behalf of everyone. But the death of Christ was sufficient for all and efficient for some. Everyone here is everyone who believes. Christ's death can only be applied for those who come to God in faith and repentance, desiring his grace and forgiveness. It is all by the grace of God, for by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And as believers, those who know Jesus, we are recipients, those who love him are recipients of gracious gifts. We are made holy and perfect once for all, positionally, by his sacrifice. We see that in chapter 10. Our consciences are cleansed from acts that lead to death, and we see that in chapter 9. We are freed from the fear of death, which we'll see next week. But in contrast, there are many who do not trust in the Son, but they mock him instead. For them, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, as we see in chapter 10. Everyone here means all those and only those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. 
Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then he said, it is these that testify of me. And then he said, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He came to save us from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin. And our sin breeds arrogance and insecurity and alienation from God and from one another and the relinquishing of our God-given and God-ordained responsibilities. But Christ's sacrifice brings humility and reconciliation with God and restores us to a place of fulfilling what God intends us to be. So that the final idea, simply put, is this. We mess things up, but Jesus sets things right. Jesus sets things right. He puts things back together. Broken lives and families, even whole communities. Our insecurity and our arrogance are a heavy burden that breaks our backs and crushes and ruins our souls. It affects our souls and our families and the church and the community and even the world. Praise God, Jesus came to rectify the situation. We're ushered once again to the foot of the cross. The unavoidable, inescapable cross of Christ. On that cross, Jesus was lifted up. Humbled to the point of death. He died. He was buried. He came back to life. And he's coming again. We mess things up, but Jesus puts things back together. And looking at ourselves will lead us to despair. But seeing Jesus gives hope. He cares for us. He thinks of us. He remembers us. Sin ruins us. But thank God the blood cleanses us. Jesus is the answer to every problem. He is the comfort for every pain. And that phrase that we sometimes throw around, seeing is believing, is quite literally true. The use of seeing in verse 9 points to seeing by faith. Believing the message, identifying fully with God's provision for sin. Remember when Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 14 said, Just as the serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up? Go quickly to Numbers 21. I want you to see something. Back in Numbers 21, there was a situation. We all like to say that when there's sin involved. There was a situation. And the people became impatient because of this long journey. And the people spoke against God. So what did God do? God sent fiery serpents among them. If you're like me, you're probably lifting your feet up right now. You know? uh, snakes that were going to bite them. 
I'm not trying to scare you. It's here in the Bible. And so Moses prayed for the people. He interceded for them. And here's what God said in verse 8. Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. It was this bronze serpent, a brass serpent. And when they got bitten by the snake, they looked at the serpent on the pole and lived. And Jesus in John 3 refers to himself with this story. 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The bites of the snake having to do with sin. And looking to the snake and being healed and looking then to Jesus being forgiveness and life. And he says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And what you see is a tie-in between that looking of the Old Testament and believing in the New Testament. So that looking equates to faith. Seeing Jesus is seeing him by faith. Have you found yourself drifting? We talked about this last week. Maybe drifting along in a sea of confusion over what in the world you're doing in life. Why you exist and what you're here for. God has a purpose in mind much bigger than you could ever dream. And it's based on what Jesus did. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And we apply that so often to initial salvation. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond salvation to sanctification. God at work in our life to conform us to the image of Christ. But we must yield from start to finish. It's interesting. I got some angel tickets, by the way. Two angel tickets for Monday, September 4th. And uh, I'm not going to give them away. Sorry. Just going to hold them up here. The thing is, um, if I gave them away, they wouldn't do you any good because they're for Monday, September 4th, 2006. I just found these last week. I had labeled the envelope and everything, two tickets, Monday, 7.05. They did me no good because I did not use them. They were free, but still. But still. Waste of $24 right there. God wants us to respond to him. If we don't know Jesus in salvation, but if we do know Jesus, looking to him, seeing him, seeing all about what his incarnation and his death on the cross is about and basing our entire life on him. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. It takes a Daily response to him, a daily yielding of our life to him. And the response of the one who has seen Jesus is, all I want is you, Lord. I want to go where you want to lead. I want to be who you made me to be. And nothing can satisfy the soul like Jesus. 
The one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good knows that full well. I want you to do something. There's a, there's a little card. As we close right now, there's a card, the, connect, the, the getting acquainted card. If you, if you don't know Jesus and you, you want to, I want you to write on the back of that, uh, there's a check, how I can know Jesus personally. I want you to fill that out and write on that and give it to me after the service. I want to talk to you about that. It could be that you have come to know Christ even in this service as you've heard the gospel. Write that down too. I came to know Jesus today. If you believe that he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, he's coming back, and you believe in his work that you could never do, it says you'll be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Also, let's think about those of us who know Jesus. We've got to see him every day. The gaze of our soul upon him by faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the fact that you remember us that you are concerned with us. And that while the world asks what is man and the message comes back, well, he's important as long as he can buy and sell and accumulate or he's no different than animals or he controls his own destiny. We know those are lies. We thank you, Lord, that to that question you have said, I have made you in my own image to have fellowship with me. But that... We chose to go our own way and therefore forfeited the privilege and that we often ruin and abuse what you have made. But We thank you, Lord, that at the perfect time you chose a way by yourself, a way that no one could ever humanly accomplish. And thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus while never ceasing to be God but becoming fully human and that he lived and died and rose from the dead and that he will return. We thank you, Lord, that when you answer that question, what is man, you say he was so bad, Christ had to die for him, but he was so valuable that he wanted to. And we thank you and praise you and we give our lives to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm just going to say God bless you. Have a wonderful day. And uh, we've gone a little over, so enjoy one another's company. and. Uh, Have a great day.